we are back. And my left hand is World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech by Franklin Foer. We do hope very much that we can bring Mr. Foer onto this program in the future. But let us delve into what he has put onto paper. From his prologue, he notes that the big tech companies, the Europeans have charmingly and correctly lumped them together as GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, are shredding the principles which protect individuality. Their devices and sites have collapsed privacy. They disrespect the value of authorship with their hostility to intellectual property. In the realm of economics, they justify monopoly with their well-articulated belief that competition undermines our pursuit of the common good and ambitious goals. When it comes to the most central tenet of individualism, free will, the tech companies have a different way. They hope to automate the choices, both large and small, that we have made as we float through the day. It's their algorithms that suggest the news we read, the goods we buy, the path we travel, the friends we invite into our circle. It's not hard to marvel at these companies and their inventions, which often make life infinitely easier. But we spent too much time marveling. The time has arrived to consider the consequences of these monopolies to reassert our role in determining the human path. Once we cross certain thresholds, once we transform the value of institutions, once we abandon privacy, there's no turning back, no restoring our lost individuality. And one threshold I think we should need to address immediately is what artificial intelligence may do for our future. Joining us in this endeavor is a guy we like to call Mr. AI. Or is it Dr. AI? Which would you prefer? Artie's good. All right, Artie. And, and we should actually point out to listeners that you, you are a PhD in computer science and that you wrote your dissertation on the very subject we're going to delve into, artificial intelligence, correct? That is true. Uh, it was written kind of in the, I would say, the mid-early days of AI. It's, it's going through a renaissance now. It, it goes kind of like a sine wave up and down. Right now, it's definitely on the, the peak of that uh, sine wave in popularity. Well, let, let's talk about the ups and downs of sure. the subject of artificial intelligence. And to do so, I'm going to quote from Chapter 2 of Mr. Forer's book, titled The Google Theory of History. Mr. Forer notes in the summer of 2015, Google renamed itself Alphabet, which was a statement about the company's place in history. A search engine called Google remained, but the company has become so much more than that. It is a commercial bazaar, a backbone of internet infrastructure, a software company, a hardware company, a phone company, an advertising agency, a home appliance company, a life sciences company, a machine learning company, an automobile company, a social media company, and a TV network. Four notes that the alphabet was one of humanity's greatest innovations, the sort of everlasting achievement that this company intends to foment again and again. Four notes that bluster pours forth from the tech elite, and that much of the world tends to look at their lengthy inventory of grandiose projects as vanity. If Jeff Bezos wants to launch rockets into space, then Elon Musk will do him one better and colonize Mars. But Silicon Valley is hardly distinguished by the hegemonic ethos of its leaders, especially relative to finance or media. What makes big tech different is that it pursues these projects with a theological sense of conviction, which makes its efforts both wondrous and dangerous. 
At the epicenter of Google's bulging portfolio is one master project. The company wants to create machines that replicate the human brain and then advance beyond. This is the essence of its attempts to build an unabridged database of global knowledge and its efforts to train algorithms to become adept at finding patterns, teaching them to discern images and understand language. Taking on this grandiose assignment, Google stands to transform life on the planet precisely as it boasted it would. He notes the company rushes forward with little regard for what it tramples on its way to the new Jerusalem. They go on to note how Larry Page, it's Larry Page and Sergey Brin that are the founders of Google, Larry Page's dad, Carl Page, was someone who programmed his sons, it might be noted, to think the way they do about, well, artificial intelligence. The AI pioneers formulated their own intoxicating theory of the human mind. This is back in the 70s and earlier. They believe that the brain is itself a computer, a device controlled by programs, and that this metaphor provided a fairly neat description of their own task, building a mechanical machine to imitate an organic one. Carl Page, Larry's dad, posited that the procedures contained in Robert's Rules of Order, a late 19th century manual for running effective meetings, would provide the basis for building artificial intelligence. Four notes that it is a testament to Carl Page's teaching that his son went on to found the most successful, most ambitious AI company in history, although we don't think of Google that way. But AI is precisely the source of the company's greatness. Google uses algorithms trained to think just like you. To accomplish this daunting task, Google must understand the intention behind your query. When you typed rock, did you mean the geological feature or the musical genre or the wrestler turned actor? Google's AI is so proficient that it can even supply the result for your query before you finish typing it. Well, so far, so good. We all love Google, don't we? It's changed our lives. But Four notes that in moments of candor, Page and Brin admit that they imagine going even further. Not just about creating an artificial brain, but welding it to the human. As Brin once told the journalist Stephen Levy, certainly if you had all the world's information directly attached to your brain, or an artificial brain that was smarter than your brain, you'd be better off. Or, as he added on a separate occasion, perhaps in the future we can just attach a little version of Google that you just plug into your brain. Four notes that Google may or may not ever achieve these grandiose goals, but that's how the company views its role. He notes that when Page describes Google reshaping the future of humanity, this isn't simply a description of the convenience it provides. What it aims to redirect is the course of evolution in the Darwinian sense of the word. It's not too grandiose a claim that they are attempting to create a superior species, a species that transcends our natural form. At this point, I think I want to pause and go to my color commentator to say what your reaction to what I've just read might be. Well, I think that there is there are definitely a lot of benefits that we're going to get out of AI and we're already getting out of AI. And one example is, you know, your, your smartphone. Is ba- your smartphone basically is an artificial intelligent machine that yeah. we carry with us. It's extended our brains. And you, you, you already know how powerful it is and addicting it is because if you ever leave your phone home, I'm sure that part of you, for most people, feel like there's something missing. Some people get nervous when they don't have it. Good Lord. There's that, it, well, for the record, I don't get nervous when my right. phone isn't around. You, you are an exception, I agree. Yeah. But... I know I do, I have to admit, and, and it's, it's like because this thing is an extension of my brain that's so powerful, and it's only beginning. I mean, this is just the beginning. It's going to be even more powerful. 
Now, you can leapfrog to what, Kurt, what Ray Kurzweil says is by the year 2045 that we're going to merge with AIs of that time and we're going to, the humans can, will be able to increase our intelligence a billion fold. Now, well, okay, I'm going to stop you right here. But that's a long way off. I just want to say that we don't know it's going to be 2045. I, I, like I said, the top of the hour here, I don't know much about Ray Kurzweil. I, didn't read, I never heard of him until I read this book. I mean, I'm sure you've been familiar with him for 30 years. But I don't know whether our listeners are or not, but let's educate him a bit, shall we? Sure. All right, before we talk about him, let's, let's, let's back up a little bit to the summer of 1935 when a man who's now become well-known to the public, Alan Turing, evidently lay down amid some apple trees and conceived of something he called the logical computing machine. His vision, recorded on paper, became the blueprint for the digital revolution. According to Franklin Fole, engineering is considered the paragon of rationality, a profession devoted to systems and planning, the enemy of spontaneity and instinct. Alan Turing certainly enjoyed playing the role of scientific scold, gleefully mocking all those who nervously fretted over the implications of new inventions. Said Turing, quote, one day ladies will take their computers for walks in the park and tell each other, my little computers said such a funny thing this morning. Franklin Power says this posture was a bit rich. In his most influential essays, Turing wasn't simply reporting the evidence or carefully deploying inductive reasoning. Once you cut through his arch wit and logical bravura, you could see he was thinking spiritually. Turing believed the computer wasn't just a machine. It was also a child, a being capable of learning. Said he, quote, We may hope that machines will eventually compete with men in all purely intellectual fields, unquote. He wrote those words in 1950 when computers were relatively impotent, very large boxes that could do just a little bit of math. At that moment, there was little evidence to justify the belief that these machines would ever acquire the capabilities of the human brain. Still, Turing had faith. He imagined a test of the computer's intelligence in which a person would send written questions to a human and a machine in another room. Receiving two sets of answers, the interrogator would have to guess which answers came from the human. Turing predicted that within 50 years, the machine would routinely fool the questioner. And I would have to ask you, uh, Artie, uh, Turing's prediction has not yet been fulfilled. It has not yet been totally fulfilled. However, there is a prize that is offered every year for the best chatbot program that can talk. And they, they run a, a version of the Turing test. And there are programs that have gotten close to being, to actually passing the Turing test completely. And Kurzweil actually predicts that in about 12 years from now, that an AI will pass it, will pass a valid version of the Turing test completely. And I, and I think that's totally possible. In fact, it may even be sooner than that. All right, well, let's talk about Ray Kurzweil, described by Four as the high priest of this religion. He calls it a religion because this idea of creating a, 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 a computer mind is, in his opinion, a theological pursuit. All right, Ray Kurzweil first made a big splash in the public mind as a 17-year-old when he showed up on Steve Allen's game show, I've Got a Secret. He played the piano with virtuosity. Steve Allen then asked the panel to guess his concealed truth. Under questioning by the show's panelists, Kurzweil finally revealed that the music he played was composed by a computer. The audience was gobsmacked by that, but it's not as much as by the fact that the scrawny teen from Queens had invented the machine revealed on the set. He proudly walked Alan around the noisy, hulking pile of wires, flashing lights, and relays, the work of a savant. Fowler notes that Kurzweil was the perfect engineer, confident he could work out any puzzle put in front of him. 
As a newly minted graduate of MIT, he proclaimed to a friend that he wanted, quote, to invent things so that the blind could see and the deaf could hear and the lame could walk. And at 27, he created a machine that could read to the blind. Notes four, to describe the invention, to describe the invention hardly captures its audacity. The blind could place their books on a scanner that would then pour the text into a computer, which would then articulate the words. But before Kurzweil's machine, a flatbed scanner hasn't existed. So by all accounts, Artie, we have to admit that this guy is a bit of a genius. Definitely. I think there's no question of that. And, uh, you know, in the last several you know, years of, of his life, he's been spending more and more time talking about artificial intelligence and making predictions in several books that have been very popular. And, you know, we'll, we'll see if the exact years he predicted, you know, come true for, for these different milestones. But well, I think the general trend is definitely clear that eventually an AI will pass the Turing test. I think there's no question of that. It's really? Already, it's you already, believe there's no question of there's that? There's absolutely no question. It's well, already, there, are, there are many would disagree with you. Well, there are already, you can go on the internet and look up, there already are chatbots that can converse on different topics. Yes, but they, they cheat. They, they have cheats in them that, that, that make you think that it's a person. Well, but keep in mind that, okay, well, now you have to talk about the nature of the Turing test itself. I believe that it, it's possible to have a program that can pass the Turing test and yet not be, let's say, intelligent That's in the sense of That's what many have claimed, yes, right. that, that, that they're just finding better ways right. to make it look like So they're... one way, of, you could actually make the argument that passing the Turing test just shows that a program is intelligent, quote-unquote, then, then it comes to, well, what, how do you define intelligence? People used to say, well, you know, uh, an a, a program will never be able to play chess and beat a human or beat a world champion. Well, you know, it turned out that eventually, yes, th there was a chess program invented that did beat the world champion, Garry Kasparov. So then what happens is, when that happens, then people will say, well, okay, playing chess, that's not really what intelligence is. It's actually this other thing, X, Y, Z. And then NAI was, is then made to do that. And then they say, well, AI really isn't that. It's really this other thing. So at some point, you have to ask, what is human intelligence? Right. What is, is it that makes us... now? I, the analogy I like to use is of an airplane. We invented planes. They, they fly, but they don't fly the way birds do. They do it a different way. And so, you know, you can have artificial intelligent programs that exhibit intelligence, but they, they are not going to be doing it in the way that humans do. I think one question is, can you ever have a program that does exhibit intelligence the way humans do? And that I'm not sure about. That That's, of course, a central right. a question that, that's been asked for decades. I'm not sure what the answer is. I go back and forth on whether it's possible or not. My current gut feeling is that it's not possible, that it'll always be like an airplane. It'll always be exhibiting intelligence. It'll, it'll be good enough for what we need. It'll help us tremendously. But not the same as the human mind. Exactly. And I, and I think all of us, you know, when we take an airplane, we don't go, well, God, is this really like a bird? Well, we don't care. It flies and it gets us from A to B. It, it achieves the purpose that we want out of it. Right. And I think that's where AI is going to be so useful to humans and why we're going to love it. And we already love it. No one's doubting the fact that if, if AI is what drives our, 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 our cell phone, that there's some, there's some good there. There is a lot of good. Yeah. I think there's a, and by the way, I want to make a quick comment that what really has been in the media the most has been these comments by Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, and others, that AI may eventually become so intelligent and just have the notion of runaway intelligence or a singularity that occurs – Ray Kurzweil says it may be in the year 2045. Right, well, let, but but let, my point is that that's a long way off. It may be even way past the year 2045. We don't know. And I think it, it, Kurzweil even says that it, it's probably going to happen gradually uh, when we uh, this, this notion of getting more and more intelligent computers, computers that are getting smarter and smarter. 
if it happens gradually, that means we have time to develop AI ethics, to deal with it, to really to talk about it, and people are starting to deal with the ethics of this issue. All right. Well, let, let me, let's back up and re-enter this, because I do want to quote from Forum on what you're talking about to get, to get you guys in sync here. Forum notes that Kurzweil believes fervently in AI, duh, which he studied at MIT with its earliest pioneers. He yearns for the heaven on earth it will create. Said Ford, this paradise has a name. It's called the singularity, as you mentioned. Kurzweil borrowed the term from the mathematician come science fixer writer Werner Vinge, who in turn filched it from astrophysics. The singularity, in this case, refers to a rupture in the space-time continuum. It describes the moment when the finite becomes infinite. Kurzweil's telling, I don't, we haven't established whether it's Kurzweil or Kurzweil, at any rate, we're going to call him Kurzweil's telling. The singularity is when artificial intelligence becomes all-powerful, when computers are capable of designing and building other computers. The superintelligence will, of course, create a superintelligence even more powerful than itself, and so on down the post-human generations. Quoting Kurzweil, at that point, all bets are off. Strong AI and nanotechnology create any project, any situation, any environment that we can imagine at will. At which point, I just stop and go, is this guy nuts? We're going we're gonna to invent machines that are going to get smarter and smarter and smarter, and we're just going to become like the aphids uh, feeding on the plant? I mean, our job will be what? To keep the machines running? We'll become enslaved? I mean, if, if machines become smart enough and they need the electricity to keep running, we're going to be in we're going to be getting the electricity generating business, right? Well, I, I I like to use analogies, Doug, and let's all right, let's look at the analogy of at one point there were apes out in the badlands and they were competing and at some point you know that that we developed the frontal cortex and you could think of that as a technological innovation and apes that had yeah, had had this feature, were able to procreate more, which led to even, and then eventually they were even bigger. Well, I agree. Point. Human the po- beings the are like that, nothing that, else on planet Earth. So I we believe have taken I'll over have, the planet. Yeah, I mean, I'll have to double check okay. the, the actual. Imagine history. you're one of the other species. <laughs> the, the point is, <laughs> you want to be the humans that are the, now the other species as something else becomes the new humans. Well, like the Neanderthals were left behind as this as this Homo sapiens took off, and basically the brain. Exactly. At a faster, My point. Faster pace. I don't want to become the new Neanderthals. Do but, you? But here, no. That, that's right. And so, I'm just trying to make the analogy so people can understand that it's sort of happened before that there was a species that kind of took off in the sense that it, it got smarter right, no, and smarter and no, left left these others in the dust. No okay. argument. No argument. So, I just think that if you're looking at it like you don't, if you're not on the gravy train of the new species that's now going to become world dominant. Well, you may just be, you know, holding the uh, the poop end of the stick. But there's a big difference. Okay, so where the analogy breaks down is the fact that we are in control here. It's like in, uh, the example I gave about Homo sapiens, you know, taking over and, and leaving the Neanderthals in the dust, etc. That was at the nat- at nature's whim, and it all happened out of natural selection. This is something that we're creating, and we have control over it theoretically. Well, how do, how do, okay, assuming it becomes exponentially smarter than us, and then then it takes another right. another order of magnitude to jump beyond that. Won't it be child's play to outsmart us to make us servile to them? That's that's an interesting point. So I think what yeah. So the problem that people are worried about, I believe, is that what if it go? What if it go, that process? It might be orderly at first, and we might have controls over it. What happens if it goes out of control? It ha- maybe there's a leap that happens that we don't predict, 
and then it goes off in some direction that we didn't we didn't realize was going to happen. That's where the danger is. Well, Criswell doesn't see any danger in this. He thinks by the year 20, 2045, this is all going to take place. I think this is the risk that Musk and Hawking and others are talking about. Not not Kurzweil. He's just I think he's he's I think he's pretty much in the pro AI camp. Although he's raising warning flags, which is good. But Musk and Hawking are really sounding the alarm bells, and it's okay, okay. to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But the point is that it, it, well, there's an old saying: you could always pull the plug. So if you can, you know, if an AI is running on electricity, we pull the plug. The AI is dead. Let's, let's suppose we're using AI in some way that it becomes ingrained in our fabric that we can't pull the plug. That's one of the dangers. So AI ethics is going to is a field that's really burgeoning now, and it's dealing with all these questions. Well, let's of, hope. But I mean, the whole question of ethics and how these companies are, are controlling our lives is something that's pretty central to what is, I guess, a dialogue we're now beginning, and we that's right. we will be part of that. Google has quietly gone around trying to scan all the world's books, and. Four notes that when the historian of technology, George Dyson, visited the Googleplex to give a talk, an engineer casually admitted to him, we're not scanning all those books to be read by people. We're scanning them to be read by AI. Four notes that if that's true, then it's easier to understand Google's secrecy about all this. The world's greatest collection of knowledge was mere grist to train machines, a sacrifice for this future singularity. Doesn't that scare the hell out of you? No, I'll be honest. It really doesn't scare me. Um... I, I mean, maybe I should be scared. It's possible that at some point I will be scared by it. Right now it doesn't. I think it's because partly I'm not scared because I know that this is still really in, in the infancy stage. And when people are, are looking way down the road and saying, well, this is going to run amok, it's going to go crazy. I really, my gut feeling is that it's not going to happen that soon. And we, there's plenty of time to adjust and, and get our handle on it and develop ethical rules for how to deal with, with this sort of thing. I, I still think it's way too early to worry about it. Well, they note also here that Google has one of its most accomplished engineers, uh, Peter Norvig. He's arguing against this law of accelerated returns of Kurzweil. And uh, although they note that Larry Page has never publicly commented on Kurzweil, there's a pattern here. In 2008, Google helped bankroll the creation of Singularity University, which is housed on a NASA campus in Silicon Valley. I guess that's, that's um, Ames Research. A 10-week quote-unquote graduate program co-funded by Kurzweil is there to promote his ideas. Google has donated millions so that students can tend SU on a free ride. Page said at one point, if I was a student, this is where I'd like to be. The company, said Four, has indulged a slew of Singularian obsessions. And and by the way, even though um, even though Eric Schmidt, who has been the voice of uh, Google for some time, I guess I guess they Google's investors forced Larry Page and Sergey Brin to accept him as their quote adult unquote supervisor. That's according to Franklin Four. Um, they note that uh, in 2011, Page shifted himself back into the corner office to the CEO job that he held at Google's birth, and he redirected the company towards Singularian goals. And over the years. He has befriended Kurzweil and worked with him on assorted projects. And after he returned to his old job, he hired Kurzweil and anointed him as Google's director of engineering. So they seem serious about pushing this forward. They're definitely serious about it. And so are all the other big, you know, the, the really big tech companies, Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook. They're all, they all have major AI efforts. There's no question that this is a, a hot area. It, it's AI machine learning are going to continue to be extremely important in the research you know, it, it, research is going on in these areas because, A, it's going to make lots of money for these guys because it's going to lead to products that we, that's going to help our lives. And 
B, it, it happens to be such a hot thing right now that investment dollars are coming in. It's a, it's a very, it's it's much easier for a company to get funding in this area than it used to be. So it's definitely the place to be. But I still think that the bottom line is that the benefits way way outweigh the risk right now. Yes, eventually they may right be up risk. to the point where the guys that run these companies develop an intelligence that controls all of our lives, and then they rule the world. Possibly. Okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Right at that point, we're fine. <laughs> yeah, up until then, it's fine. Well, this is this is the, this is what's interesting about the notion of singularity because the singularity, if it really does happen, could happen like in the blink of an eye. The hope is that we're going to see it coming, you know, well in advance, so we'll be able to control for it and, if if needed, pull the plug or at least put training wheels on it. Whatever, however, whatever metaphor you want to use. If we don't see it coming, before, it before, happens before the Skynet system becomes self-aware. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> It, it is an interesting question. That's why AI ethics is so important and why it's growing right now. It, it, you're going to see that term more and more. But I still think it's it's early days. Let, let's have talks about it. Let, let's reason about it. It's yeah, good, let's it's start. Good. We're doing it now. Uh, you know, in a way, I'm glad the media has this bias for the negativity. It does lead to more clicks, et cetera. But it's good because it raises awareness for the dangers so that we can talk about it, reason about it, build in safeguards, whatever's needed even though I still think it's probably way too early, well, we, it's good to have we, it. We should note also that four notes in this in this chapter, which I think everybody should read, that there is a school called Incrementalists who cherish everything that has been accomplished to date. You know, page rank algorithm is, is kind of like a, a, a really AI, I guess. And they note that this school holds out little or no hope that computers will ever acquire anything approximating human consciousness, which I think might make us breathe a little easier, those of us who are concerned. <laughs> you know, maybe the question of whether it's going to achieve human intelligence is kind of, maybe that's not the real question. I, I still think that, you know, if an AI gets smart enough, you know, smarter and smarter, eventually it will exhibit human intelligence-like features. It'll, it'll become so good, maybe the question won't even be asked anymore. It'll be so real and so lifelike, it won't matter. Well, is it human or not? It won't matter. It will appear to be enough that we just it just passes for human. And that it doesn't really matter. Well, is it really or not? Well, we won't really care. I think that's one of the things that's going to happen hmm. when, when, the, when this does happen. Some people, researchers will care. Some people will care about it and want to know, well, what, what, what's going on? What is it? If it exhibits, well, isn't there an old saying? If it looks like a duck, acts like a duck, you know. It's going to exhibit all the qualities of human intelligence. It'll pass for it. It'll pass the Turing test and more. And therefore, we will consider it. You know, in, in fact, people are already talking about robots and AIs having rights at some point, and, and that probably will happen because it'll be it'll exhibit all the different features of intelligence of human intelligence. It just won't. I still think deep down it actually won't be, and yet it won't matter. Well, as I look at the state of the world today, which is based on what human intelligence has done, as we mentioned a moment ago, with CO two levels now at four hundred three parts per million, I'm, I'm not finding a lot of reassurance in this uh, in this line <laughs> of reasoning. It's an interesting point. So yeah, so what? So maybe, perhaps human intelligence, you know, it, it, it has a lot of good features, but maybe it's you know not as good as we. Perhaps AI intelligence, even though it won't won't deep down it won't be human. Maybe it'll be better than human. That's what some people argue. Is it true or not? I don't know, but it's certainly it's an incredibly intriguing area to explore. All right, we're going to talk about this in the future, I'm sure, at great length. Uh, thank you, Artie, for joining us. Uh, I just have one more thing I want to throw out here before we end, because I don't want to end on computer stuff, because it makes me ill. But this is a technology item. It comes from the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA, which has a lunar orbiter. I'm looking down from lunar orbit, it has captured images of a large hole near the moon's Marius regions. And evidently they've used some radar echo patterns to show there appears to be a vast network of lava tubes present. 
So when we go back to the moon to establish a base, that looks like the place to go. The Japanese are calculating that they've, there's a hollowed-out lava tube that's 31 miles long and at least a half mile high. These studies' authors also suggest that this cavern might contain ice or water, and it would likely shield astronauts from meteorites, extreme temperatures, and intense radiation. So, looks like we now know where to put the moon base. Well, Artie, thanks for joining us, and uh, come again. Thanks, Doug. I enjoyed it. All right. This program was produced by Edwin McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.